Welcome to The Data Chief. The Data Chief is a podcast for data and analytics leaders to share their personal stories and insights on technology, culture, and leadership. Hello, Data Chief listeners. I hope everyone had a fabulous summer from around the world. Summer's over. That means it's back to school and back to books. Wait, for some of you, you never took a break from those books. As data professionals in our fast-paced industry, I know that you are continuous learners, always reading, always listening, always debating. I especially love the debating. Last year's author's episode was so popular, we decided to repeat the format again this year with three new authors that covers the latest must-read books. You'll hear from BBC broadcaster Tim Harford, author of The Data Detective. Then Jamak Dagani, founder and author of The Data Mesh. And finally, Brent Dykes, author of Effective Data Storytelling. And while you'll get to hear from these authors on this episode, be sure to visit the Data Chief blog for this year's roundup of must-read books. Data Chief is presented by our friends at ThoughtSpot, the modern analytics cloud company. ThoughtSpot makes it easy for anyone to analyze your company's data with search and AI. Business people at companies like Verizon, Hulu, Schneider Electric, Frontify, Hari, and Workato use ThoughtSpot to quickly uncover new insights and turn them into action. And you can learn more at ThoughtSpot.com. First up, we have Tim Harford an economist and host of BBC's show, More or Less, and a best-selling repeat author. The Data Detective is one of those books that will spark both your team's conversations as well as conversations around the family dinner table. Tim lays out 10 rules that will make all of us more data fluent, a skill that is truly a life skill in our increasingly digital world. His stories of how data is used and sometimes abused will both shock and inspire you. Perhaps this is why the book goes by a different title in Europe, How to Make the World Add Up. Tim, welcome to The Data Chief. It's a pleasure to be on the podcast. Yeah. So where are you joining us from today, Tim? It is a lovely summer afternoon in Oxford in the UK. Yes, so further north of London, um, the weather is always a hot topic. But Tim, you know, I'm an avid, avid reader. And somehow last year, I missed your book. And I wonder if, and I have, you can kind of see, I'm like the post-it queen. There are so many wonderful sound bites in this. Oh yeah, loving that. (laughs) Yes, Um, And, but yet what's interesting to me is in Europe, it had a different title, How to Make the World Add Up. Tell us why two different titles. So yes, the book was called The Data Detective in the US and Canada, and also Guam, if you find that interesting, and uh, How to Make the World Add Up Everywhere Else That Speaks English. And there's no mystery, uh, the British publisher wanted one title, and the American publisher wanted a different one. And so... 
there we are. Uh, that, that's what that's what that's what I got stuck with. Yeah. Um, I, I don't think either publisher fully reckons with the uh, the challenge for an author of having to tweet about a book or uh, and having to having to put up blog posts on the website when when the book has different titles in different places. But um, there you go. These things are sent to try us. Different people hear the titles and instantly gravitate towards one or the other. It's quite interesting that people don't necessarily gravitate towards the same one. I mean, which one do you prefer? Do you prefer The Data Detective or How to Make the World Add Up? I very much prefer The Data Detective. And maybe because I'm a data person, when I saw the title, How to Make the World Add Up, I was thinking of one of the Bill Bryson books. Right. So I wasn't thinking that it was something necessarily for me. Well, yeah. Although Bill Bryson... I mean that's not a that's not a bad, bad comparison. Uh, yes, okay. <laughs> I'd, I'd be happy happy to be compared yeah. with with Bill Bryson. Oh, oh yeah. No, I I think it belongs up there. Um, yeah, we have three editions of of his one book, but but I think I actually do think I love the book because it is about data and the different ways that it really affects everyday life. And I I appreciate in your podcast, you take topics on how data is used to influence politics and things like this. So as we think about people needing to be more data fluent, I almost feel like this is a roadmap for what this means in everyday life. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I'm trying to help people make sense of the world. And in the modern world, you can't make sense of the world without numbers. You can't make sense of the world without statistics, without data. But I don't want to lose track of the helping people make sense of stuff. So I didn't want to get straight into the technical details and talking about algorithms and lines of best fit and correlation causation, P statistics, T statistics. I start with the user of the data. And I assume that that person it's just an ordinary person trying to make sense of the world. And so what advice can I give them to make sense of it all? And a friend of mine, uh, Matt Parker, who's a great maths communicator, YouTuber, at one stage he said, oh, so you've written a book about numbers. So you've written a book about how to think about numbers. And I said, no, I've, ri- I've written a book about how to think about the world. It's just numbers are the tool. And if you want to be able to think about the world, you need to bring the numbers with you. Yeah, so it, it reminds me of a quote from Brene Brown. I don't know. Are you a follower of her? <laughs> I'm, I'm aware of her work. Yeah. A little bit? Okay. Well, it's um, what if data is really just stories with soul? And so I do think um, numbers do help us make sense of the world when we understand them and correctly interpret them. So the other thing I liked about your book is the way you really break it down into the 10 data commandments before you interact with numbers. Is there one that is a favorite of yours or maybe one that most surprised you? I think the one that will surprise most readers of the book is the very first one. I don't think it's one that you'll find yes. in, in many other books about data because people get to the technical stuff and they get all, all the kind of the, the mathematical rules or the statistical rules. But my first rule is to notice how you're feeling, 
to notice your emotional reaction to the data. And the reason that that is so important is, in a way, it's obvious when you think about the last five years or so, the way we react to information, whether it's a graph, whether it's a data point, whether it's a newspaper headline, is hugely influenced by our emotions. Whether we're in denial, whether we're afraid, whether we're laughing, whether we think something's ridiculous, whether we feel vindicated by by something, uh, or we feel a sense of tribal loyalty, like this is what people on my side think, and that or that's the kind of bad thing that people on the other side think. Whatever it is, whatever the emotional reaction is, it overwhelmingly influences what you choose to believe and what you choose not to believe. And we give stuff a free pass that we really should be examining more closely. And then other things that we should accept, we subject to undue undue scrutiny and we just find absurd reasons to disbelieve them. And that is all about the emotional reaction. Now, I'm not saying don't have emotions. Yeah, you're a human. I'm a human. We all have emotions. That's fine. But I do think it's worth being aware of them. And it's a fairly simple habit to cultivate as you're reading a newspaper, you're on social media, uh, maybe you're, you're looking at a bunch of slides in a boardroom, wherever it is, when you see a new piece of information, the first question to ask is, how does it make me feel? Am I having an emotional reaction? And if I am having an emotional reaction, well, what is it? And then having noticed that, you know, you just count to three and then the emotion, I think, starts to lose a little bit of its power over you. You can go back and start thinking a bit more clearly about whether you should be accepting or rejecting this claim on its merits rather than because of the emotion it triggers. Yeah. So it's interesting that you pick that one. And that actually is the first chapter of the book, because that is one that surprised me as well. And I, I think I had two reactions to it. One is because I think we like to think of numbers as pure and somewhat non-emotional. And yet (laughs) I recently had a situation where somebody got really upset with a number that I presented. And the fact that they got upset made me more upset. And I was like, wow, this is a good, and it had to do with diversity in tech. And I thought this is a good example of where um, if I'm too married to one set of answers, I need to ask why. And should I be trusting that data? So I'm picturing everyone listening to this podcast. And one of the things that we try to tell customers to do is to stop manipulating numbers to create vanity metrics. And and part of one of the technologies that people have used to do this is they would rather look at a blessed, manipulated PowerPoint that tells their version of the story. And we're trying to say, stop doing that. So if you picture a business person in a room and maybe inventory, I'm gonna take inventory because I was dealing with this with a customer, the inventory numbers are higher than what they should be and higher than last year. Take us through the emotion and, and what goes wrong? What would be a better practice when these bad numbers are being presented in a boardroom? Yeah, I mean, the, the, the first thing that happens is something called biased assimilation. So biased assimilation is where you take on board information that you, you want, that suits you, and you reject information that doesn't 
Sue Yu doesn't fit the narrative that you're telling yourself or that you're trying to tell other people. And you can see evidence for this, that if you give people on a very polarized issue, if you give people who already have polarized views, if you give them more information, even though they're, they're getting the same information and they're, you know, they're polarized on, say, the left and on the right, you give the two sides more shared information, it actually polarizes them more. You would think, well, having, giving people more information wouldn't, you know, should bring them closer together because they're seeing more data that's you know, more of the same facts. But it doesn't because what happens is people on the left systematically favor the stuff that backs the narrative on the left and the people on the right systematically favor the stuff that backs the narrative on the right. And so giving people a whole bunch of unbiased information actually drives them further apart from each other. So that's the first thing that's happening is biased assimilation. You see this inventory um, and if it suits the story that you want, you'll grab onto that. You'll remember the number, you'll remember the graph. If it doesn't suit the story you want, you'll forget about it or you'll immediately look for reasons to undermine it. What's wrong with this data? Where did this come from? Where did you get this nonsense? Yeah. And you don't have to have much of that before you've gone off on entirely the wrong track. Okay, but then you're saying don't give them more data. What what is the antidote? What do we do? So uh, you need to make sure that people are in a receptive uh, frame of mind for the data. And the, I mean, the book I should say is not about trying to persuade people. It's not about trying to persuade people. It's about trying to get your own head straight. So most of the advice in the book is about yeah. thinking more clearly yourself, not trying to persuade other people. I do think it's interesting that people are always asking me. Oh, I think clearly, but I know I've got this friend and he's an idiot or she's an idiot. <laughs> How do I get them to think straight? And my answer is always, well, maybe work on yourself first and then we can work on other people. Yeah. But so what would you do in that particular situation? Um, I would be uh, much more trying to get people more interested in the process. Like, well, there's this really interesting question, which is what's going on in the warehouses? What is going on with our inventory? Um Here's why it's a, a not a straightforward question to answer. Here's why it's intriguing. Here's why there are different kinds of metrics. Here are the kinds of things you can do in order to try to investigate what, you know, what's going on in the warehouses. And this is why different metrics might tell you a different story. And once you've got people engaged and kind of, oh, mm, interesting. Um, we don't know how much stuff's in our warehouses. That's an interesting mystery. Tell me more. Then they're much more open-minded. And when you finally give them what you think is the right answer or is a selection of you know, possible answers, then you're solving the problem for them. You're solving the mystery for, for them rather than just hitting them with information that either they immediately reject because it doesn't suit what they want or that they immediately accept all too uncritically uh, because it fits their narrative. Yeah. And, and so maybe that gets back to the emotional, if if you're the supply chain manager <laughs> and you're accumulating too much inventory, you're going to feel threatened. Mm -hmm. So this is the emotional side. But but if the culture is there for an evidence-based decision-making, what do we do about this? What's the problem to solve? Then maybe we get to a better place. But you, you bring up another aspect on the tribal thinking yeah. and how acceptance within a group can further the divide in data or bring people together. Can you share a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, ultimately, in many of the situations we face, and we're social primates, right? In many of the situations we face, 
the thing that determines survival is do you have friends who've got your back or not? Uh, it's not being right. It's not being factually correct about the world. It's about have you got buddies who are going to back you up? Yeah. And when you think about that, perhaps no wonder uh, it's true that people are more concerned to process data in a way that suits a particular social narrative that will help them fit in with a particular crowd uh, rather than um, people just willing to think like a scientist and try to really sort of analyze every part of the data until they actually figure out what's going on. Um, so I don't think it's particularly mysterious that we seem less interested in the truth than perhaps we should. The good news is that uh, if you can get a group of people working together, debating in a friendly and constructive way, disagreeing over the data in a friendly and constructive way, that's a great way to get closer to the truth. As long as the, as long as the disagreement is, is, is positive, as long as the disagreement is constructive, is, is aiming at the truth, disagreement is a great way to find out what the truth really is. Yeah. And so I think that's true then if everybody is aligned to the same goal. Um, but when they're not, that's when data can be manipulated, made to lie. Yeah. And one of the one of the classic problems, I think, is when data is used as a mechanism for control. Yes. So uh, you start trying to measure the world and then you say, well, hang on a minute, we can try and control the world. So I can use these metrics in order to manage people. I can use these metrics in order to provide uh, performance measures and to determine who gets fired or what people's bonuses are. And that's an understandable desire. And of course, up to a point, it's perfectly reasonable to try to do this. But there is a real danger, which is that the moment you use the metrics in that way, there's the risk that the metrics themselves start to become distorted. So a classic example is the Vietnam body count metric. So Robert McNamara comes from Ford Motor Company uh, to run the U.S. Department of Defense. He's trying to run the Vietnam War, this terrible war that's happening around the other side of the planet. Uh, we know what's going on. Is it going well? Is it going badly? He's a, you know, he's a metrics guy and he needs metrics. And you know, it's not a territorial war, it's an insurgency and a counterinsurgency. So he reckons, well, maybe if we figure out how many of the enemy we've killed, maybe that's a good metric. Maybe the more we kill, maybe the better we're doing. Now you can argue with whether that's a good metric or not. Um, I suspect not. But it immediately starts to lead to distortions. So for one thing, there's an incentive for soldiers to say that whoever they killed they're an enemy combatant because they're getting points for killing enemy combatants. So suddenly civilians are being killed, and they're, they're, but they're being redefined as enemy combatants. Or you have entire missions where the, the purpose of the mission is to count the bodies. Oh, we killed some people over the other side of the valley. Mm. We don't know how many people we killed. We've got to send some guys over in the line of fire, and there's no military objective. They just need to count the bodies because we've got to get the body count. Clearly, this is I mean, it's a very upsetting example, and it's an extreme example. But this sort of thing, in a smaller way, happens all the time when managers take data, and instead of trying to use it to understand what's going on, they start saying, okay, promotions depend on this, uh, bonuses depend on this, and then the data are going to get distorted. Yeah, teachers and test scores is another good example. So really, it's not the data, it's the measure 
that we should go back to what do we really want to be measuring? What's the behaviors we're trying to drive? Um, you have an idea of how to inoculate against this, um, a skill that some people are innately born with, but one that we can foster. What is that? Well, I've mentioned already the importance of curiosity. When people are curious, they are processing data in a different way. So they're, they're treating new information as kind of satisfying a hunger. It's filling a, filling a hole in their model of the world uh, in a very pleasing way. And if the new information is sort of surprising, if it doesn't quite fit, well, that's even better. That's really interesting. So while most of us, when we get data that contradicts what we believe, most of us would say, well, that can't be right. Uh, that's, that's probably fake news. The curious person is like, oh, wow, interesting. There's whole new worlds to conquer, whole new worlds to explore. So it's a much healthier, more interesting way of engaging with, with data. Well, there's another couple of things that are, are really interesting about curiosity. So one thing is it just motivates people to study more, to pay more attention. I mean, one of the people talk about the filter bubble. People are in this bubble, not absorbing news from the other side. The truth is most people are in a filter bubble of no news at all. Most people are not paying any attention to anything because they, they find it tedious and boring and they'd rather be you know, watching some sport or having a beer or playing a computer game. And so curiosity motivates you to be more engaged with the world of science, the world of information, the world of news, um, as well as making you more open-minded. There's a, there's a lovely study that I mentioned in the book um, exploring something called the illusion of explanatory depth. And the illusion of explanatory depth is that um, people think they understand how stuff works. And it's only when you gently ask them to elaborate they realize maybe they don't understand quite as well as they thought. So if you say to somebody, okay, just, just um, how, how well do you understand a flush lavatory on a scale of one to 10? People will be like, yeah, I think an eight. I think I, yeah, I think I basically know how it works. And then you say, great, that's so interesting. Here's a pen and a paper. Just walk me through it. Then people start to struggle. Like, where, like, where, where does all the water go to anyway? And why, and how does it stop at a particular level? And what, and, and they realize they don't really know, except in a very vague way. The amazing thing about that study is when you do that, people not only they'll admit that they don't know. They, 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 don't, they don't sort of double down. They're, they're not in denial. They become more aware of their own, um, the, the gaps in their own knowledge. And remarkably, the same thing works for policy questions. So if you ask somebody to explain... Uh, if you ask somebody, oh, do you know how, say, um, sanctions on Russia work? They'll say, yeah, yeah, I, I understand that. And then you say, okay, great, just explain it to me. Like, how does it work? Like, what's allowed? What's not allowed? Is it unilateral? Is it multilateral? Like, how's, how's it enforced? What are the exceptions? Then suddenly people are like, actually, I don't really know. So that they'll admit. And then once they admit that there's a gap in the knowledge, they row back. They see the world less black and white. Um, they're more open to new information because they realize there's a gap in the information that they've got. So just inviting people to explain things to you, to tell you more, can be a great way to get them to rethink and to be more curious. Um, and of course, it, there is always the possibility that, in fact, they know loads about the subject, in which case, when you invite them to tell you more, you're going to learn something. 
But either way, it's a more respectful way of having a conversation and of, of waking people's curiosity up. Yeah. So why I like this is because I want people to be able to ask more and more questions of the data. I don't, I think we're at a point in the world um, at large and in business where um, with it's getting easier to get to the data for some. We don't need the experts. And yet I have to come back and play a little bit devil's advocate because you share some stories in your book where there's so much distrust of the data and the people that really want to speak the truth are punished in ways that I just I just couldn't imagine it. So um, you share a story about the Greek economist, Andreas, and the debt ratios in Greece. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about this. Yeah, Andreas Georgiou. So, so yes, he was brought in from, he's um, Greek by birth, um, brought in from uh, working in Washington, D.C. in the International Monetary Fund and asked to basically sort out Greece's statistics. He's supposed to head the, the Greek statistical agency. And the fundamental problem at the time is that the rest of the world didn't trust Greek statistics. In particular, it had turned out that uh, Greeks borrowing, Greece's borrowing was way, way higher than it, than it had seemed because the various things had been concealed off the books and so on. So there was a, the flow of new debt was much larger than people had realized. The debt itself looked really unsustainable. There's a huge financial crisis. I mean, there's a global financial crisis going on, but the, now there's one focused on Greece. And it all starts with statistics that people don't believe. So he's brought in to fix it. And so he starts trying to fix it. He starts trying to publish what he thinks are more accurate statistics. Truth. And that's where his problem begins. So uh, people start uh, spying on him. He's got disputes with people in his own office. Um, he is uh, prosecuted repeatedly. And he keeps being sort of, these cases keep getting thrown out and then reinstated and thrown out and reinstated. I lose track of how often. I mean, it's an absurd number of times the same case seems to come up or some variant of the same case seems to come up. And his point is that, uh, you know, he's, he'll be fine. He can go back to the United States and so on, but that the people who come after him, they will know that honesty is not welcome from a senior statistician in Greece. Um, and Greece is not the only country to experience this, right? Yeah. And so, so this is somebody who believes in numbers. You want the public to be able to trust the numbers. And we could, we could say this about so many things, climate change, COVID case counts, or that poor supply chain manager in that business meeting who is really just trying to trust the truth in the numbers. Yeah. And yet there's these other things going on. And the point that I make in the book is that these people are sometimes heroic and we just take them for granted. You know, we talk about lies, damn lies and statistics. Oh, you can't believe the numbers. And, and we say those things without having any idea of how much effort and professionalism and skill and sometimes how much courage it took to gather those numbers. Uh, and I think the world would be a better place if we had a little bit more respect for the people who put these numbers together for us, because we all rely on them. And if they, if they do cave into political pressure, if they do manipulate the numbers, we all suffer. 
Uh, and when they, when they're at pains to tell the truth, sometimes they're the ones who suffer. Yes. Well, so on that note, Tim, you are so well-read, so well-versed in a range of topics. How do you personally keep up with things? Is it podcasts? Is it reading? Is it just being out there talking to people? How do you keep up? Um, Well, I have a number of different journalistic pursuits. So I have a column for the Financial Times and a BBC podcast, more or less. And then I have another podcast called Cautionary Tales. Uh, and I write books. So partly just the process of doing all of these things. So with the BBC, I've got a whole team of people doing research for me or just casting around for stories for my columns or for for cautionary tales um, means I'm having to just look quite widely. Uh, my The best news source for me is the Financial Times, of course. I would say that. I'm very biased. But I'm a huge podcast consumer. I listen <laughs> to lots of podcasts. I'm a real fan of podcasts. I love, love it when the, the information comes in through my ears. That works really well for me. Um, and I live in Oxford, as I mentioned, and I spend a lot of time in Oxford University's Bodleian Library. So a lot of a lot of time just reading the books in the library. Um, sometimes the old stories are the best ones. Yes, um, such an inspiring place to live. When you're not dealing with numbers and statistics and podcasting, what do you do for fun? Uh, well, I'm I'm a, a big role playing gamer, so I'm when when I finish this conversation, I'll be preparing to run a game of Dungeons and Dragons for a group of uh, neighbourhood ten year olds, uh, and I I also play uh, role playing games with with grown up friends as well. So uh, yeah, I kind of I spend some time in a fantasy world, uh, which is which is it's great for me because. These games, they involve a lot of mental arithmetic, a lot of grasp of probability. So there's that nerdy side. Um, but there's also these feats of imagination. You're improvising, you're acting, you're dreaming up new stories. So it satisfies my creative side as well. Oh, that sounds fantastic. I'm going to have to tell some friends in Oxford um, about these adult role-playing games. I think they would sign up for Dungeons & Dragons in a heartbeat. <laughs> sure they would. So, Tim, I... I always like to end uh, the episode with with one question. If you think of everything going on in your life and the world right now, what are you most grateful for? Well, I mean, the obvious thing to say would be would be my my wife and my children. But to be slightly less obvious, uh, I'm very grateful for the vaccines. So uh, right now, I'm three days into my first COVID infection. Um, there's no way we could have this conversation face-to-face because I would be breathing virus all over you. But this is a disease that killed a good friend of mine in March 2020. It's very, very dangerous. Uh, And I have had friends who have got this and it has caused them lasting illness and damage or, or just laid people out for weeks. And here I am. Talking to you, can you tell? No, I cannot tell. I cannot tell. Yeah. Uh, and and that's because of the vaccines. I'm triple triple vaccinated. I, I got a couple of couple of doses from uh, from just up the road. Uh, they developed the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine just up the road, and and a, a dose of Pfizer as well. And I'm basically fine. And that is amazing. That is amazing. And of course, we should hear it for the for the data scientists because it was a big. Uh, statistical effort to gather the evidence that this stuff actually works and and is safe. So yeah, that's what I'm grateful for, vaccines. Yeah. 
Um, so well said. And those data scientists, I think um, not many know outside our circles that it was one of the first times that they actually shared the data and allowed other manufacturers to train their models on competitors' data. Yeah. So I, I think a great moment for the data scientists. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Tim, thank you so much for being on The Data Chief. Uh, it's my pleasure. Thank you so much, Cindy. Now that you're ready to apply Tim's 10 rules, we need data and lots of it from everywhere with no gaps. Jamak Dagani is the founder and author of The Data Mesh, a book that I was able to preview last year while she was writing it. And I predicted then that it would become as foundational to our industry as the work of Bill Inman and Ralph Kimball. Based on the customer conversations, as well as the conferences I've attended since that book has been released, it's proving to be true. The Data Mesh started as a concept several years ago when Jamak was a director and consultant at ThoughtWorks, leading their emerging technologies practice. She is now the founder of a startup in stealth mode. But the data mesh is a principle and an architectural construct that organizations are aspiring to implement around the world to really deliver data products faster, more quickly. Okay, Jamak, welcome to the Data Chief. Great to be here, Cindy. Where are you joining us from today? Today, I am in Sydney, Australia. Okay, Sydney, Australia. So I, I feel like we're taking you away from some of my favorite beaches. Are you a beach person, Shamak? I am a beach person. I actually, I'm very close to one of the kind of nice beaches on the northern part of Sydney, uh, but it's been very rainy, so it's been hard to go to the beach. Yes, the winter season. Um, do you have a favorite, Manly or Bondi or some that I've never heard of? You've done your homework, Sydney. Sydney, have you been been to those beaches yourself? Yes, of course. I, I would only have like one free hour and I would say I have to go see one of these beaches. Yeah. Yeah. I am north of Manly. Okay. It's a small beach called Freshwater. It's just north of Manly. Oh, great. You'll have to share us a picture. So, Jamak, it was really just about a year ago when I picture myself sitting on my front yard reading on my iPad, and I'm terrible about reading on my iPad, but you had just released the first three chapters of The Data Mesh. So here we are um, just over a year later, and the book is out. Bring us back to a year ago when you first started writing. Did you envision at that point in time that it would become so popular, really almost the Bible for this generation of data professionals? Um, so a year ago, let's, let's go back. Where was I? Um, I had already started talking and writing about data mesh. So I had some idea in terms of the demand and interest. Uh, it goes, in fact, the public speaking and public content goes back to early 2019. So by the time I, I started to really put the pen on paper writing the book, I had published a couple of blogs, I had given multiple talks, and I knew from the popularity of those talks, there was a demand and there was a need. And 
I wasn't a crazy one. So, but um, a, a year ago, I was exactly back <laughs> to this spot. I, I was in Sydney visiting family and I was writing those three chapters. In fact, I wrote them in quarantine in a hotel room with my daughter and my husband in the background. And uh, it, it, the, the book reshaped and changed a lot since, since those early releases. Um, but I, I'm still pinching myself. I can't believe how how much it has resonated and how much demand there is for something different, something that describes the reality, you know, and some of it is kind of a harsh reality of how data is managed and used and, you know, how much interest there is for an alternative approach. Yeah, you do. You don't hold back on things. And I remember when we published our list of must-read books, I said, I think this book will become a- as pivotal um, in the industry as the early books of Bill Inman and Ralph Kimball were. And I think that has has proved out. It's interesting to me to see people writing a book report chapter by chapter on LinkedIn. There was just the Snowflake Summit, and there were more than a dozen track sessions on the data mesh. So you clearly have struck a nerve, but for people that maybe have not been following this, define for us briefly, what is the data mesh and what are the key tenants? Sure. Data mesh is a decentralized socio-technical approach for managing, accessing, and sharing data for analytical use cases. Um, those analytical use cases can range from training machine learning models in a decentralized way or writing reports and generating reports and in- incentive, um, insights in a decentralized way. And it's designed for complex and you know, large environments, whether we are sharing and accessing data across an organization between the business units or sharing and accessing data across organizations, across trust boundaries. The objective of the data mesh is creating a model of responsible data sharing that can scale out in step with organizational growth and complexity. As as organizations become larger, as the touch points with customers and the systems that generates data diversifies as the number of use cases where we want to use that data in machine learning, in analytics increases. It's it's a model that is designed to really scale and meet this expansion of complexity and uncertainty need. Um, the tenants behind it really, the four tenants that I that I talk about, the the very first and I guess the, the most important one, the two first ones are the most important ones in my mind. And the very first one is, you know, owning and sharing data, both from organizational structure and architecture, around this idea of business domains. So people in business domains in tech-aligned groups across functional teams that are today building applications, that are today digitizing and a business experience, a business act outcome are now responsible for sharing data for analytical use cases, really removing that centralized responsibility and centralized architecture of a big data team to a decentralized model of kind of domain-oriented, business-aligned tech teams and extending their responsibilities to, to data and analytics. And the second tenet 
is to share that data as a product, really treat that data as a product. So the data scientists, data analysts, people that want to use that data are treated as first-class users. Um, and that brings itself a you know architectural model around the what what is actually data, what constitutes this product that we're sharing. Is it archives of files or is it more than that? So there's a kind of a deep body of knowledge around kind of what is the data as a product. The third and fourth, I guess, pillars of data mesh are really to make those first two pillars possible and feasible. So the third one is a definition of a self-serve infrastructure that gives autonomy to these cross-functional business-oriented or domain-oriented teams to share and use and discover data. So what is the, you know, the self-serve uh, infrastructure job? And the last one is to be able to govern, to make sure cross-functional concerns of security, privacy, accessibility quality is applied across these data products. There is a model of governance um, that relies on federation of, again, responsibility around the governance, as well as automation of policies as code within these data products. Um, That's a kind of a short description of what data mesh is. No, I think that's good. So there's a couple things that I want to parse there. One is that it is decentralized. And so I'm picturing the head of analytics in supply chain or marketing saying, yay, I can do what I want now. And I'm not constrained by that centralized team. And then I picture the centralized team saying, well, wait a minute, what about master data and how do we ensure a single view of the customer? So how do you how do you blend to these two schools of thought? And is, is this a fight that they just have to work through to get to a better place? Yes, that's a fantastic question, Cindy. So the I think we should embrace the autonomy at the same time, equip those autonomous teams with the right engineering and engineering discipline and architecture that addresses all of these concerns that the centralized data team was trying to harness and control and manage, right? So um, I really caution people to take data mesh at the, you know, kind of the superficial layer of, yes, now we have the autonomous teams and can do whatever we want and we can peer-to-peer share data. That leads to absolute chaos and a total mess if we don't build and you know make that layer of self-serve infrastructure to build the engineering pieces in place. So if I give you an analogy, you know, we've gone from monolithic applications running in in you know in the prior to 2010s, monolithic kind of applications running in data centers to a very decentralized microservice oriented cloud application, you know, running across different organizational boundaries. And yet we're building solutions that are digital solutions that are cohesive, that are consistent experience, that are reliable. And the only way we could do that was the engineering discipline and architectural foundation that, you know, the Kubernetes as the, you know, containerization, virtualization, API management, API documentation, all of that mm-hmm. was put in place. Zero trust architectures, you know, the models of security and privacy. There's a body of just technological kind of advances that made that possible. The same, I think, needs to happen for data mesh to address the consistent view of the customer across these or interoperability, interconnection of customer across different domains to address 
the privacy of the customer information as it changes hand between the domains. So I, I, I think that's how we, you know, address the concern of data teams. What they were trying to achieve with, with a system of control uh, under one body, right, um, under one team, needs to achieve needs to be achieved by machines and you know, kind of technology in a distributed fashion. Yeah. And I think the the other reason why I think I really appreciated the book is you do take people through how did we get here and why we need a new model of operating. We cannot continue to wait nine months or even nine weeks for a centralized team to get to a least common denominator. So you're, the book is one thing, but I think it's also the concepts that you were already practicing as the head of innovation at the consulting company ThoughtWorks. So did some of this, were you leveraging the new technologies that were available or was this all in response to your customer's desire to move faster? So we um, we certainly leveraged the um, the technology that was available with our clients. So the it's it's the what we've done with the implementations of data mesh uh, within you know with, with ThoughtWorks is that we first and foremost put the customer needs and customer use cases at the center. So if there is a customer that you know needs to move faster, they want to get value from data at scale, they have a ton of use cases, but they've been sitting there trying to wait, you know, waiting for the next silver bullet to arrive. And it's a right customer. So evaluation of where to apply data mesh matters um, is the first thing that we do. So then for those organizations that technologically they're advanced enough, they've got the in-house capabilities to build the solutions that really doesn't exist currently off the shelf, and they are able to custom build and custom you know, operate it, then we kind of help them to build that custom layer using that existing technology. And every implementation of data mesh looks a little bit different for every, you know, custom implementation right now. So there are no, you know, kind of off-the-shelf technologies that are designed for this model to say, oh, this is this is the North Star and these are the set of technologies that you can just buy and integrate. So, um, yeah, the solutioning leverages innovative and kind of more advanced, I guess, data solutions or data technologies, but it's still a fair bit of custom build that needs to happen. Yeah, and I think this is a key point. You You can't just go buy it. It's as much a way of operating than um, just, just buying one technology. And I think your word choice of socio-technical is interesting because I think that the use of the word socio, it's like you're trying to communicate that it's about the people and how they're organized. Do you agree or, or tell us a little bit more there? Absolutely. Plus hundred. So um, when I first wrote the first, you know, the 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 first blog post, I actually called it. I can't remember beyond the lake, going beyond the lake to a data mesh architecture. So it was a strong kind of architectural spin or te- technology spin um, on it, and it, it was the main driver. And as I started kind of working through the implementations. I realized, I mean, this is, <laughs> everybody comes to this, gives this difficult answer that people are the impossible part of any you know, technological solution. But I really realized that there was a, 
embedded culture and value system around the data and biases that we had to work with to make this architecture actually work. So then the socio part of that socio-technical was added later on within the last three years before the book, of course, came out. And components around governance were added along the way as we learned what are the missing pieces. Um, So yes, so it has gone through some evolution. Um, I feel comfortable where we are right now. So I do find it fascinating. It's almost like is some of the frustration that people feel with the data mesh as well as the excitement is they want it to be easy. They don't want it to be about the people and how they're organized. And so I think this begs the question, is the data mesh ideal for everyone or is it more suitable for certain organizational cultures? Yeah, great question. I think um, it's not suitable for everyone and every organization. Um, And if we put organizations on a spectrum from um, you know, on one end of the spectrum, you've got technology um, organizations that have technology at their core, as in they're building and using technology to drive and even shape their strategy. So they're very comfortable with building the technology solution in-house. And there are organizations that have organized themselves around domains. They are scaling out based on this distributed domain-oriented operating model. If on one end we have those organizations, and on the other end we have organizations that are very much a you know buy and integrate technology, outsource technology, um, and are very centrally organized. They have a centralized IT function, very separate from businesses, business lines. Um, I would think data mesh at this point in time are the for the people on the other side of the spectrum, the organizations that are naturally not organized around domains, there will have a lot of headwinds. And that that criteria would shift, Cindy, over time, right? Right. Yeah. And this is where I always say, well, state of the art keeps changing and the way we do things should change as the technology allows us to adapt. And yet some people fight that. So, but as I said, you you put things very bluntly. So I'm thinking of the chapter, what to do with the existing data warehouse platforms. Can they coexist? What did you say here? (laughs) Or has your thinking changed? Uh, What do we do with the existing data warehouse? Yes. Yes. So there is not going to be a single implementation of data mesh that's greenfield, right? Any organization that probably has you know, a data strategy has been working on the data, now moving toward data mesh, it's going to have a data warehouse or a data lake or data lake team, right? And there has to be a migration strategy. So I think I, I did put some notes around that, but I would say two things. One is let's separate the technology and the physical layer from the kind of the logical layer of this architecture. Uh, So at the physical layer, there are a set of technologies today, they call themselves lake or lake house or warehouse. Um, Those technologies can be used at the physical layer for hosting the data or processing the workloads of these data products. However, on the logical layer, on the experience layer, where the developers, the data producers or data users 
experience the data, experience the processing, um, we, we are creating new experiences and new technologies to manage that. So, so I guess just in this conversation, what I want to address is the kind of the architecture, warehouse as an architecture and organizational structure, or lake as an architectural organizational structure. That cannot coexist with data mesh. The technology can coexist, but the structurally we have a warehouse team and that they are responsible for all of the data. That just simply is incompatible data mesh. It's redundant. It's and competing. It's competing, absolutely. It's, 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 it's in conflict. You might still have some, you know, some areas of your business that you say, I will not bring this area to data mesh because, you know, we have our finance reports and God knows how they get done and they're really hard to reproduce. So we're not going to touch this and we're going to keep them in the warehouse. So as you go through this migration, you might still have some pieces of your domains and some pieces of your data that remains on the warehouse. But for the majority of the part, the migration would be looking at your use cases and applications of that data, working backward and finding the teams and domains that can be responsible for that and migrating that data ownership, whether it's on the warehouse and linked to them, and then creating these data products that now embody the data and the, you know, the, the analytical computation for that particular domain. So gradually we are moving our consumers to this domain-oriented data producers and peer-to-peer they're communicating data. There's no centralized or middleman or a broker uh, sitting in the middle. And that's a, that's a gradual and iterative process. Yeah, and I almost think, well, the one organization type that probably just has it great when you say Greenfield is a startup. A new SaaS company is probably just going to operate this way from the beginning. They have none of the technical debt. So as you look at where the industry has been and where people are trying to get to, thinking of data as a product, delivering um, these data products faster how does somebody start? Does it start with one use case or one functional area? Or is it also when you implement a new um, transactional application, is this the opportunity to say, well, how are we going to get the insights out of this? Yeah. I think data mesh, because it's such a transformation, it needs to get started and be treated as one. Um, that there needs to get started by, you know, a an executive, perhaps a courageous executive at the top driving this transformation. And then when we, we vision it that way, the current data strategy of an organization, which should be aligned with their business strategy, which should explicitly describe what are the business initiatives that can't be done without the data. We need ML models to be embedded in the business. We need insights to change the experience of our, you know, customers and our users and, you know, our, our employees to use the data. So it has to start from there. And then once you kind of work backward from the business strategy to the data strategy, then you find these use cases, a set of use cases, a portfolio of, of, an, of an approved portfolio of initiatives that are data-driven. And then you can do an evaluation of, okay, out of this portfolio, which are these use cases are most apt for driving the, the build and execution of data mesh, both from the organizational change as well as architecture and technology. 
And there is a criteria that you can apply to select those. For example, and I put some of this in the book, um, you know, which, uh, which of these use cases requires perhaps a limited number of domains to provide data, not all of them. So often, for example, marketing use cases requires data from all of the domains. So you have to do this like big bank, right? Yeah. So find the use cases that perhaps are a bit narrower and then work backward to find the domains that can be you know, the best place for providing to go through the transformation and providing the data and really provide um, deliver value in twent as in as part of the execution of one iteration of, let's say, this transformation, build the use case, deliver the actual use cases, um, build out the data products that support it and also, you know, build a platform and governance model and operating model um, that supports that and, you know, end to end data to value realization. Uh, so we can kind of iteratively then mature this. And, and uh, we have done this over, we have a client that we've been doing this for three years, over three years. And, you know, the the very first use case that we picked was super narrow in terms of like sharing, um, you know, pr- some personal data around kind of claims um, and be able to share that data across um, different um, actual organizations. Um, and then, you know, the platform was very thin, and then you know we the data the manifestation of data product was very limited and you know iteration over iteration we became better in terms of faster data to value data to data product um, had more richer governance embedded as code into this data product and so on and so on uh, so I think just it, this is a this is an approach that I have seen worked and I would encourage folks that's where to get started. Yeah, no, I think it's the quick wins are important with any kind of transformational uh, product. You can't go away for two years and and then see what happens. Um, But you said it requires a strong leadership. Do you think the chief data officer or chief data and analytics officer is is that still within their purview, or is does the idea of um, centralization put that at odds? It's a super interesting question. Um, I will share some of my personal experience and some of the trends that I'm seeing and uh, maybe a little bit of a wish list that I hope where it goes to. Uh, so data mesh in majority of organization that I see is a starting within the data group. So majority, not all of them. Uh, so it's chief data officer, chief data analytics officer has data mesh as part of their strategy. In more successful implementation, that strategy is actually a joint strategy between the CTO, CIO, and the chief data officer. So it's not a separation because they recognize very early on the change that needs to happen within those cross-functional technical teams. Now, I have seen implementations that they deferred that, as in they said, well, let's let's build the platform and the initial data products downstream with from whatever Blake warehouse we have within the you know, just the purview of CDAO, still the CDAO responsible for delivering that. And then later on, we move to the, you know, CTO domain and the cross-functional tech app teams and try to give these data products to them. And really that that doesn't work because you're just, we're just building a very complex solution, still centralized, right? Yeah, that makes sense. And I, what the pattern that I'm seeing is that that pairing happens and it's very joint collaboration happens very, very early in the process. 
Yeah, I think that's great. There's a customer I was working with who um, eliminated the role of the CDO because they were going to decentralize everything. <laughs> and I felt like this is premature. You're, you're not ready for that, but um, we'll see. Well, Jamak, you've been so busy giving back um, to the industry, educating a generation of workers. When you're not dealing with data, what are you doing in your spare time? Um, I do things to keep me sane, I suppose. <laughs> Simple <laughs> things, just uh, run. I run a lot. Anytime I find, I just go out in the nature and run and spend a lot of time with my little one. So I spend time with my daughter. Oh, that's great. And how do you personally keep up with how quickly our industry is moving? Is it reading, talking to people, podcasting? All of the above. I would say for me, immersion in technology, constant immersion is just the fact of life of us, right? People that are in this business, um, they have to immerse themselves. So I do all of the above. I do uh, anytime I go for a run or do anything, I'm listening to podcasts. Um, I've got definitely favorites to go to. I, I have a stack of books. <laughs> always go go through yes um and, and talking to people and working working on the ground like there's nothing like the experience of seeing you know the problems firsthand and and try to have that feedback loop right so so all of the above yeah the validation i think is good that's where i think we get um we move the industry along so jamak you've given back so much to the industry um with this work and I just like to often end with the question, what are you most grateful for? I'm grateful for all the people that I have got to know, the relationship I've built um, and the support that I've got. Like, I'm just so humbled and, and so grateful for every, every one of these conversations, yourself, your platform, um, every person on the data machine learning Slack channel, people that run, run the group, um, clients just, just, grateful for relationships. Um, some of these relationships are personal. Some of them are just behind the screen. We've never met in person so far. So I'm utterly, utterly grateful for the support of people and industry to move Datamish forward. Yeah. Well, hopefully we'll have the chance to meet at some point in the next year. But on behalf of the industry, really, thank you for really taking on some well-entrenched thoughts, practices, habits, and challenging us to innovate better, faster. Thank you, Shamak. Thank you, Cynthia. So we've got a data-fluent culture, faster data products, and of course, people will act on that data, right? Maybe, sometimes. Great data delivered without good communication and data storytelling skills is not often acted upon. Brent Dykes is the author of Effective Data Storytelling and founder of Analytics Hero. He shares with you that first heart-stopping moment when he realized the importance of data storytelling. He's honed his best practices over years, working as an analytics practitioner, a vendor, a professor, and consultant. Well, Brent, I can already see how data storytelling and data come together with you, with your love of comics. But where are you joining us from today? Yes, I'm, I'm based in Utah. Utah. Okay. my One of my favorite ski places that I discovered this year and home of another great uh, storyteller, Ben Taylor, of course. 
But Brent, um, so I've just finished reading your book and author to author, I have to ask you this question. Yeah. So Wiley is a traditional publisher and yet you are one of the few that actually convinced them to do color graphics. Um, and some of these I just love. Yeah. I was only able ever to get the Kindle edition of my books in color. Right. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, it was it was interesting because as I was uh, looking for book publishers, I was working with an agent and I actually came close to signing with another book publisher. And then when I was looking at their list price, I was like, wow, that seems really low. And then the alarm bell went off in my head and said, oh, is this black and white or is this color? And for me, because data storytelling is all about visualizing our data effectively and color being such a a critical component of how we communicate our insights um, to others, I felt like it was kind of a no, a non-starter if I couldn't get color. So I actually walked away from a book deal with a, another publisher who basically said that we, yeah, we could only do it in black and white with gradients and stuff. And then they kind of said to me, yeah, oh, we could do in the digital copy, we can do it in color and we can do all that. And I was like, no, uh, that's not going to cut it for me. I really need to have this book in color. And if you can't do it in color, then it's, uh, you know, I'll have to find a different publisher. So I think that experience, when I went to talk to Wiley about potentially uh, publishing my book, that was one of my upfront things that I talked about and specified that if I'm going to do this this book, to me, I just could not do black and white gradient uh, it's hard to talk about the importance of color when I can't show color in, in my book. Yeah. And even um, some of the techniques, both whether it's a visual or also how you're explaining a process, I think it nicely adds to that. So I really like that you did not settle in pursuit of getting this book out there. But for our listeners that might be new to this concept, tell us why data storytelling is so important. Well, I feel that data storytelling is super important because obviously we put all this work into gathering the data, collecting it, obviously preparing it, uh, visualizing it in different reports and dashboards, and then hopefully we're doing analysis. And then obviously the communication of it is in that last mile, you know, and, and ultimately I, I really believe in driving action from the data. Uh, that's really the only way that we're going to get value from all these efforts that we put in. And unless we can drive value, value from it and drive action, uh, that's a real problem. So storytelling is really a, a great means for us to communicate our insights more clearly, position them so that they can be acted upon by different decision makers, by business teams, and, and really drive value from the data. I think that's really it, that's why I really say that data storytelling is so critical for organizations. Yeah, for sure. We agree. And this is one of the areas where I've said to universities that I advise um, and even people debating taking a boot camp that it, if communication and data storytelling is not part of the curriculum, it's a miss. And so you have to go back and fill in that gap. Now, you have your own business today. You're uh, you're well followed on LinkedIn. Um, many reviews of this book. Tell us a little bit about your journey in this analytics industry and how you arrived at 
this particular segment? Yeah, for me, I my background is in marketing analytics. So I worked for a company called Omniture. Maybe some people might be familiar with that. Yes. We were later acquired by Adobe. And then for 12 years, I was at Omniture slash Adobe, mainly working in consulting. And I, at one point, was interested in writing uh, blogs for the Omniture corporate website. And at that time... I guess the company felt like, oh, no, only our senior leaders should be blogging. And so I was like, oh, man, that that's kind of lame. Yeah, that's no fun. <laughs> yeah, it's no fun. So I, I decided to do my own blog and I did PowerpointNinja.com. So I, I, I had always been really good at PowerPoint and presenting. And, and so that was kind of an opportunity for me to kind of blog and write and get exposure that way. But then eventually the people got smart at, at, at the company and said, you know, if we can get great SEO if we have more people writing content on our corporate blog. So they opened it up. And so I started writing there. And then later on, as obviously working in consulting, I saw a lot of clients really struggle with telling, like taking the insights and communicating them effectively. I also saw other consultants struggle in this area. And so I started to get interested in data storytelling and started, uh, I actually pitched when when we were actually part of Adobe, um, I actually pitched my first um, session on data storytelling to the, to the conference organizers and said, I think that this is something that could really resonate with people. And this is back in 2013, 2014. And I did my first um, breakout session on data storytelling and it was a smash hit. It was really well received and and people were really wow this is this is great and and then from there I started to dive more into the topic and each year I would present a new presentation on data storytelling and then I started presenting at other conferences and and lo and behold I was able to take both the the presentation communication side combine it with the insights and analytics side that I had and and really for me I felt like Data storytelling was just how I brought together all of my skills in one place and and could really fill a need. I, I feel like there was, obviously with data storytelling, there's been a lot of emphasis on the visualization side. Yes. And I think that, that is, that's obviously very important, but I think we, sh- we, we sell short data storytelling if we limit it to just the visualization aspect, because there's so much more behind that. It, there's the strategy behind which data you analyze and which data you bring into your data story. There's the whole narrative structure that is so powerful that, you know, if we just limit it to just the visualization aspect, then we're really shelling it, we're selling it short. Yeah. And I think that's where what um, I would say, perhaps it surprised me about your book is that you do get into some of the background, the emotional, the psychological the making the case and what you just shared now, your journey in this space, it's from a practitioner viewpoint. And I I loved, or I don't know, cringed related to a moment that you described early in your career in the book as an intern. We might have to bleep this out, but where you give a great presentation and the senior executive says, bull take us back to that moment and why, um, how that influenced your realization that we have to communicate better. I had been preparing for this midpoint presentation. And as I was preparing for this presentation, I had stumbled across 
a key finding uh, in um, some customer feedback uh, surveys that I had, I'd reviewed. And, and they basically said that our shipping policy, and this is an e-commerce provider, our shipping policy wasn't as critical to them as maybe we felt it was as part of the department. And this little nugget wasn't really related to our my project. And I kind of felt like, oh, I should raise the flag. I should make sure that, you know, this this um, manager knew about it and, and others. And, and so I, even though it wasn't directly related to my project, I decided to include it. And the reaction that I got that you just described really shocked me. I was like deer before the headlights, you know, I was kind of a little bit flustered. I didn't know what to do. Luckily, I had a mentor who got in there, was able to protect me a little bit and get me through the rest of the presentation. And it, but it, the the lesson I took away was, you know, if I really had a meaningful data point or insight that I needed to share with the organization, I should have done a much better job communicating it, right? If it was really impactful to the business, and it could have been, but the 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 reaction that this uh, manager had in front of the other managers was nobody wanted to touch it, nobody wanted to pick it up, say, hey, Brent. Hey, it looks like you got something, you know, useful here. We should definitely take a look at. No, nobody touched it. It died in that boardroom that day. Yeah. And, you know, I think a lot of the time that happens like people just aren't packaging their insights in in a good way, you know, either there's too much noise or they don't the managers who are looking at it don't understand the significance of it. They don't you know, it's not fully flushed out. It's not presented in a way that's going to really connect with people. And so we're just basically wasting these nuggets, you know, of, of valuable information because we just simply don't know how to communicate it correctly. Yeah. Or another. So I, I thank you for taking us through what must have been a painful um, moment in your career, early in your career, too, which makes it all the more um traumatic, let's say. Uh, but I also think it's it's not only the storytelling skills. We had Tim Hartford on earlier, and it's the fear and the psychological skills. If you present data that really disagrees with somebody else's current thinking, yeah. they may have a visceral reaction to this. And so even so, storytelling will only get you so far I really like uh, a quote in your book, many factors contributed to the demise of my insight, my poor delivery, the executive's closed-mindedness, and cultural inertia. So it, it really is also about him or that company's culture. And this is why I think data storytelling and culture go together so well. Right. Well, the interesting thing is that if you think about it, there's these narratives out there, right? There's a narrative that's in the mind of this executive. And here I am, you know, threatening that narrative that, oh, our shipping policy is, is the best. It's it's great. You know, our customers love it. That was the narrative that I was attacking. Now, if you, it's like bringing a knife to a gunfight. If I'm just bringing a fact and I'm taking up against an existing narrative, I'm not going to have a good chance of overcoming that. But if I bring a new narrative and I'm now replacing, I'm trying to replace uh, an existing narrative that may be uh, wrong or incorrect, I have a better chance yeah. with, a, with a fully fleshed out narrative than just, you know, here's a data point. Yeah. So um, I think also this is where 
you arm readers with frameworks on how to, <laughs> I don't know, I don't want to say knives and guns, but how to make their storytelling stronger. Yeah. And so I, I, I like your framework that you have since evolved. You started with kind of three pillars um, or concentric circles. Right. Tell us the three pillars or concentric circles and, and why you made a recent change. Yeah, so that so basically you have a kind of a Venn diagram, right? And those three circles are data, narrative, and visuals. And one of the things that I feel really gets into the power of data storytelling is when we look at the overlaps of those concentric circles. So if we look at the first one, you know, I could bring a bunch of data to an executive and say, here you go, here's this insight. And, and they could look at a spreadsheet or a data table and say, wow. Uh, and they could come away with a completely different uh, understanding, or maybe they may not come away with any understanding. And so what we need to do is we need to combine the narrative with the visuals, or sorry, the narrative with the data. And what that does is we're explaining, we're, we're basically holding their hand, we're, we're explaining to them what this data means and making sure that they come away with the same insight that we did from the data. And then the next overlap between the uh, data and the visuals um, bubbles is really if you think about it, taking that same set of data and sharing that with somebody, there's a good chance that they won't see the anomalies, they won't see the patterns in the data, the trends. And so it's about how can we visualize that information so they can see things in the data they would otherwise miss. And, and so that combination really enlightens the audience um, to things they see in the data. And then if we look at the, the narrative and the visual bubbles, obviously, you know, I like the visual storytelling, but Many of us enjoy, we binge watch on Netflix, on Amazon Prime or whatever, these these shows uh, that engage us at a very deep level as human beings. And so that visual storytelling is very powerful. And so what I like to say is that when we look at how these bubbles connect or the this Venn diagram, we can see in the center that if we take the right data, we combine it with the right narrative and the right visuals, all of a sudden we have something that's very powerful that that can really change how people view the world and influence the the behaviors that they have and the actions that they take. Uh, so I really do believe that storytelling, data storytelling, is it can be super powerful. And and I think that visual has really helped other people to see uh, the power of data storytelling as well. Well, I like these three um, circles and the Venn diagram. But what I what really resonated with me is that you've added change at the heart of this. And I think because I work with uh, our customers so much on people change management, I think that's why that addition that you added to this framework is so relevant. Explain a little bit more about that. Yeah. I mean, I think that when you have an insight that you're sharing, um, that necessitates change, right? And and I one of the uh, definitions that I use for insight, because I think a lot of times we use that word insight really loosely. And I think one of the one of the things I had some feedback from some reviewers when I was writing the book, and they said, you talk a lot about insight, but you haven't really defined it. And then somebody shared with me a, a definition that was given by Gary Klein, who's a psychologist and author. And he said that it's an, he called an insight, an unexpected shift in the way we understand things. And for me, that was perfect. That was perfect because it was simple and it really captured the essence of something. So if we think of it in terms of, you know, we have an assumption about how things work at our company. So we might say, oh, our customers buy our product because they love feature A of our product. 
And then we've done some analysis, we've done some research, some interviews, some surveys of customers, and we find out that it's actually not feature A that they love our product, it's feature B. And so now that shifts our understanding, right? We all along, we've been investing in feature A, we've promoted feature A to prospects, we've you know, it's been a key part of our product development. It's been a key part of our marketing efforts, sales, you know, everything is centered around feature A being our strongest feature. And now all of a sudden our mind opens to, oh my gosh, it's feature B that people love. And so how do we have to change our marketing? How do we have to change our sales approach? How do we have to change our product strategy? We haven't even been investing in product B. It's just kind of been there all along and we've undervalued it. And so in this sense, once we, if we have a true insight that we're sharing, we are actually inviting change. Yeah. So now you have this new awesome insight, why somebody is buying product B instead of A. You also describe two different approaches to communicating that insight, two different storytelling techniques. And maybe, you know, traditionally you give the background, lead them through, present the insight, or there's the Freitag or Harry Potter approach. Get to the point, the inverted pyramid, give me the aha or the hook, and then work back. In your work with customers, what have you found to be a more effective or frequently used approach? Yeah. So one of the things that I, I frequently get asked about is, you know, obviously executive summaries are very common. Uh, and I think that's in, in to kind of summarize it, that means you're putting your your big insight up front, right? And then you're and then the executive can then choose or not choose to learn more about that. And part of the challenge with that approach is it's very efficient, um, but I'm not sure how effective it always is. And part of that is, you know, when we do that approach, we're basically stripping out any of the emotional benefits that we get from true storytelling, where we're kind of building up to our climax, right? And and I think part of the challenge that some people have is often what happens with analysts when we're kind of explaining our uh, insights is, is not that we're really being concise with how we present our, our story. What's happening is uh, you'll often see it as the an analysis journey. I, that's what I call it, the analysis journey, where the analyst will take them through all of the steps of how they bake the cake. You know, well, first I, uh, you know, I got gathered the flour and I sifted flour. And oh, by the way, this is Belgian flour, which is, you know, is the best flour. You know, I'm making up stuff here, but basically they're walking through all yeah. of the steps. <laughs> and who cares? Give me the frosting already. <laughs> yeah. And at the end of the day, executives don't care. And so that is not storytelling. That is, that is not story. Or at least if you're telling that to other bakers, yeah, they're interested. If you're telling it to the people who consume your cake, they don't care. They just want to eat the cake. So I'm, that's not what I'm advocating for. But what we are doing is we are taking people through, um, you know, starting with that hook being a, a key entry point into the story. And so uh, to give your uh, listeners here, uh, what I mean by a hook would be, it's looking at your data and saying, what is an observation that is notable that stood out to you to kind of maybe even catch the attention of your audience. They may have spotted in a, an, in a dashboard or a report or something, they see a metric go up significantly. And then they start asking business questions of like, what the heck caused that spike in that metric? And then all of a sudden, that's the entry point into the story. That's the hook. We're coming back with, 
Well, remember when you asked about this spike in this metric? Well, what we've done is we've analyzed what went on and we, we looked at um, our customers and we found that it was this particular segment of customers that was driving this. And oh, and by the way, they were very interested in this particular product that actually went on sale. And we believe now our aha moment is, you know, we want to promote this product more widely to a broader base of customers. And we think that we can, you know, we can generate maybe 10, 15% more sales this quarter because we've found this opportunity that we didn't know was there. And, and so then, you know, and so that building up to that big reveal, I don't feel like those are wasted, uh, wasted time. We're, we're helping them to understand that there's this customer segment. We we further dive in, we find it was a particular product that that really resonated. And and now we have an action plan for actually promoting that, getting that out there and and driving some business value. So yes, we could we could pull that back and say, oh, there's this product that we we want to promote uh, and we think it'll generate uh, 10 or 15% uh, more sales. And that could be your executive summary, but then you're going to get questions about that and maybe or maybe they don't ask questions and they just they just pass on it because they don't fully understand what's going on. So I think obviously there there are situations where we use the executive summary because we don't have the time. And even in my book, I talk about an example of how we would modify the story structure and do what I call the data trailer, uh, which is basically just taking the hook and the aha moment and basically essentially doing an executive summary. But the intent of that approach is is to peak the executives' interest in learning more, hearing the rest of the story. So Brent, when you're not working with data, uh, what do you do for fun? What do I do for fun? Yeah, well, I, I enjoy um, running and cycling and uh, hiking. Uh, my wife is big into outdoor activities. And so she, she's actually way more of an athlete. She's a triathlete, Ironman. Oh, great. Um, she's preparing to do an ultra uh, race, which is a hundred miles. Um, so she's definitely crazy. She's on the insanity, uh, side there, <laughs> at least in my book. Very fit for sure. Very fit. I'm not doing those kind of distances, but, but that's, it's fun to see her, um, achieve her goals and, and be successful. And given that you're, you recently did your first in-person workshop after two years in a pandemic, what's next for you? Yeah, so uh, obviously I'm getting more and more in-person workshops, so that's great. Um, I'm actually going to, just at the time of this uh, podcast, I'm preparing to launch a new white paper. And in that white paper, I'm going to be talking about how you can build a data culture with data storytelling. And so I'm looking forward to releasing that. Hopefully by the time this podcast comes out, um, I'll, I'll have that out there for people to download and review. Um, I'm also thinking, I'm also working on building an online course based on my data storytelling. Um, so that's something I definitely want to get out there um, this year. And yeah, and I, I just love to speak at other events. I, I, I really miss that. Before the pandemic, I'd spoken in Hong Kong and Portugal and Hungary. And, and so in 2019, you know, I got to go around the world a little bit and talk about data storytelling. And then for the last, you know, 2020, 2021, 22. I haven't haven't been traveling around the world as much as I would have, uh, as much as I enjoyed in the past. So I'm hopefully looking forward to more uh, speaking opportunities in the future. Yeah, some wonderful countries you've been able to visit, and clearly we'll have to 
involve you in some of our data chief roundtables as we get back to in person instead of virtual Absolutely. only. Well, Brent, it's been great reading your book. Great having you on the Data Chief podcast. I like to end with, you can choose a flavor of one of these two questions, either what are you most grateful for right now or something that's made you laugh out loud in the recent past? Yeah. So I, I, as you can tell, I'm, I'm big in comic books. And so I'm really grateful for uh, visual storytelling, grateful for, the, for these memories that I've been able to relive, you know, based on collecting. And now I have a little bit more money to spend than I did when I was a teenager. So it's fun to go back and get the books that maybe I couldn't, couldn't quite afford when I was uh, younger and add to my collection. So that's, that's been a real joy. And, you know, it's fun to have hobbies and, you know, I, uh, for a long time, you know, raising a family and, you know, working hard and stuff, you know, you, you don't get to maybe um, enjoy these kinds of hobbies. But I think you know, that's one thing that I'm, I'm grateful for. I, yeah. My comic book collection. Good. And you can share those comic books with your family, too. So yes. that's great. Brent, thank you so much for being on The Data Chief. Thank you, Cindy. Great to be here. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of The Data Chief. To learn more about today's guest, recommend a future guest, or hear more of the show, head over to thedatachief.com. If you have questions for Cindy or comments about the episode, give her a shout by dropping your thoughts on LinkedIn and tagging Cindy Housen. And if you haven't already, be sure to subscribe, rate, and review the show. Every review helps more people discover the podcast and helps us improve our content. The Data Chief is presented by our friends at ThoughtSpot, the modern analytics cloud company. ThoughtSpot makes it easy for anyone to analyze your company's data with search and AI. Business people at companies like Verizon, CVS, Amazon, Afterpay, OpenTable, and T-Mobile use ThoughtSpot to quickly uncover new insights and turn them into action. And you can learn more at ThoughtSpot.com.